Hi, this is Ambria, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the April 8th issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. EPA is said to propose rules meant to drive up electric car sales tenfold. In what would be the nation's most ambitious climate regulation, the proposal is designed to ensure that electric cars make up the majority of new U.S. auto sales by 2032. By Coral Davenport. The Biden administration is planning some of the most stringent auto pollution limits in the world, designed to ensure that all electric cars make up as much as 67% of new passenger vehicles sold in a country by 2032, according to two people familiar with the matter. That would represent a quantum leap for the United States, where just 5.8% of vehicles sold last year were all electric and would exceed President Biden's earlier ambitions to have all electric cars account for half of those sold in the country by 2030. It would be the federal government's most aggressive climate regulation and would propel the United States to the front of the global effort to slash the greenhouse gases generated by cars, a major driver of climate change. The European Union has already enacted vehicle emission standards that are expected to phase out the sale of new gasoline power vehicles by 2035. Canada and Britain have proposed standards similar to the European model. At the same time, the proposed regulation would pose a significant challenge for automakers. Nearly every major car company has already invested heavily in electric vehicles, but few have committed to the levels envisioned by the Biden administration, and many have faced supply chain problems that have held up production. Even manufacturers who are enthusiastic about electric models are unsure whether consumers will buy enough of them to make up the majority of new car sales within a decade. The action from the EPA is likely to hearten climate activists who are angry over the Biden administration's recent decision to approve an enormous oil drilling project on federal land in Alaska. Some inside the administration argue that speeding up a transition to renewable energy, with most Americans driving electric vehicles, will lessen demand for oil drilled in Alaska or elsewhere. Michael S. Regan, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, is expected to announce the proposed limits on tailpipe emissions on Wednesday in Detroit. The requirements would be intended to ensure that electric cars represent between 54 and 60 percent of all new cars sold in the United States by 2030, with that figure rising to 64 to 67 percent of new car sales by 2032. According to the people familiar with the details who spoke on condition of anonymity because information had not been made public, Rapidly speeding up the adoption of electric vehicles in the United States would require other significant changes, including the construction of millions of new electric vehicle charging stations, an overhaul of electric grids to accommodate the power needs of those chargers, and securing supplies of minerals and other materials needed for batteries. The proposed regulation, which would go through a public comment period and could be altered by the government before becoming final, is sure to be met with legal challenges. It could also become an issue in the 2024 presidential campaign as a future administration could undo or weaken it. This is a massive undertaking, said John Bazella, president of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, which represents large U.S. and foreign automakers. It is nothing short of a complete transformation of the automotive industrial base in the automotive market. In a statement released Friday night, Maria Michaels, a spokeswoman for the EPA, did not confirm 
the new targets, but said the agency was working on new standards as directed by the president to accelerate the transition to a zero emissions transportation future, protecting people and the planet. The new regulations would come on the heels of the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act, which has helped stoke demand for electric vehicles by providing up to $7,500 in tax incentives for car buyers, as well as billions in incentives for battery manufacturing and critical mineral processing and mining. Transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gases generated by the United States, the second biggest polluter on the planet behind China. Rapidly phasing out gasoline-burning cars with electric models will help Mr. Biden achieve his pledge to cut the country's emissions in half by 2030 and effectively eliminate them by the middle of the century. The proposed auto emissions rule is even more demanding than the target laid out by Mr. Biden in a White House speech in 2021. Speaking on the South Lawn and surrounded by a line of electric vehicles, including a Ford F-150 Lightning, a Chevrolet Bolt EV, and a Jeep Wrangler. Mr. Biden issued an executive order calling for federal policies to ensure that half of the new cars sold would be all electric by 2030. There is a vision of the future that is now beginning to happen, a future of the automobile industry that is electric, battery electric, plug-in hybrid electric, fuel cell electric, Mr. Biden said at the time. But climate policy experts have said that the transition to zero-emission vehicles must move faster to avert planetary disaster. A 2021 report by the International Energy Agency found that nations would have to stop sales of new gasoline-powered cars by 2035 to keep average global temperatures from increasing by 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, compared with pre-industrial levels. Beyond that point, scientists say the effects of catastrophic heat waves, floodings, drought, crop failures, and species extinction would become significantly harder for humanity to handle. The planet has already warmed by an average of about 1.1 degrees Celsius. While the market has begun their transition to electric vehicles, government action is needed to make sure the electric car revolution is completed, said Drew Kojak executive director of the International Council on Clean Transportation, a research organization. Everyone who's watched this movie knows that the market is fickle, Mr. Kojak said. What if there's a market downturn? What if the battery minerals don't pan out? Without these firm standards that have a clear trajectory on timing, none of the players can be sure that this will happen. The proposed rule would not mandate that electric vehicles make up a certain number or percentage of sales. Instead, it would require that automakers make sure the total number of vehicles they sell each year did not exceed a certain emissions limit. That limit would be so strict that it would force car makers to ensure that two-thirds of the vehicles they sold were all electric by 2032, according to the two people familiar with the matter. Experts say the proposed regulation was synchronized federal action with a move by California to ban the sale of new gasoline-powered cars after 2035. Even manufacturers that chafe against regulations say that they would prefer to deal with one set of rules rather than meet specifications from California that differ from federal requirements. But plenty of hurdles remain for a smooth transition to electric vehicles. One of the biggest is the need for millions of electric vehicle charging stations. 
Experts say it will not be possible for electric vehicles to go from niche to mainstream without making electric charging stations as ubiquitous as corner gas stations. As 2021 infrastructure law provided $7.5 billion to provide a network of about 500,000 charging stations along federal highways, January report from S&P Global concluded that millions were needed. The transformation could also spell economic dislocation for American auto workers, as electric vehicles require fewer than half as many laborers to build as gasoline-powered cars. We've dealt with the loss of jobs before through technology, but when you talk about the speed of this, it's hard to fathom that we won't lose jobs, Mark DePaoli, a leader of United Auto Workers Local 600, said in a recent interview at the union headquarters near the Ford Rouge manufacturing plant in Dearborn, Michigan. Job losses in the auto industry could have political consequences for Mr. Biden, who will need voters in industrialized states like Michigan and Ohio if he chooses to run for a second term. As they have worked on the new regulation, administration officials have held weekly telephone calls with union leaders to try to reassure them. Mr. Biden, a self-described car guy who campaigned as the most pro-union guy you've ever seen, has reportedly tried to present the transition as an economic opportunity, emphasizing that this will create new jobs in a clean energy economy. We're going to build a different future with one, one with clean energy and good paying jobs, Mr. Biden said in a speech last summer. We have to keep retaining and recruiting building trades and union electricians for jobs in wind, solar, hydrogen, nuclear, and creating even more and better jobs. Mr. Biden has worked to ensure that only American-made electric vehicles will qualify for tax incentives provided by the Inflation Reduction Act, although a requirement that they be assembled by union workers was dropped. Two federal judges issued opposing rulings on abortion pills. Here's what's going on. One invalidated the FDA's approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone. The other ordered the FDA to do nothing to restrict the pill's availability. By Pam Bellock. The ruling by a federal judge in Texas invalidating the Food and Drug Administration's approval 23 years ago of the abortion pill Mifepristone has the potential to be the most consequential abortion decision since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June. But there are a lot of uncertainties, especially because a federal judge in Washington state issued a contradictory ruling less than an hour later saying that the FDA should do nothing to restrict the pill's availability in most states that allow abortion. So the situation is complicated. Here is what we know and what it can mean. Both rulings are preliminary injunctions issued before the full cases have been heard, but the dueling injunctions set up a legal showdown that is likely to reach the Supreme Court. The ruling by Judge Matthew J. Kazmierk of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas, a Trump appointee who was written critically about Roe v. Wade, declares the FDA's approval of Mifepristone in 2000 to be invalid. It also suspends the FDA's subsequent decision, decisions that expand the use of mifepristone in terminating early pregnancies. Legal experts said Judge Kazmierk's ruling appeared to be the first time that a court had acted to order that an approved drug be removed from the market over the objection of the FDA. If it stands, they said, it could have repercussions for the federal government's authority to regulate other types of drugs. 
The ruling by Judge Thomas O. Rice of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Washington, an Obama appointee, orders the FDA to maintain the status quo and blocks it from restricting the availability of Mifepristone in the states that filed the lawsuit before that court. That lawsuit filed by the Democratic Attorneys General challenged restrictions the FDA still imposes on the prescribing and dispensing of Mifepristone. What does this mean for the availability of abortion pills? For now, Mifepristone, the first pill in the two-drug medication abortion regimen that is used in over half of pregnancy terminations in the United States, is still available. Judge Kazmierich immediately stayed his ruling uh, for seven days to give the Department of Justice, which represents the FDA, a chance to appeal it to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and the Justice Department has already filed notice of its appeal. If the appeals court upholds the judge's orders or declines to put it on pause until the full case is heard, the Justice Department will most likely appeal that decision to the Supreme Court, which could quickly decide whether or not to suspend the injunction. The Supreme Court will also take into account the contradictory ruling by the federal judge in the Washington District Court case, legal experts said. Even if the Texas ruling is upheld, several scenarios would allow Mifepristone to remain available in the United States, at least for the time being. And if the drug does eventually become unavailable in the United States, patients would probably still be able to get it from overseas. How can a judge withdraw an approval of a drug that has been legal for 23 years? The lawsuit in the Texas District Court filed by a consortium of groups and doctors opposed to abortion argues that the FDA did not adequately review the scientific evidence or follow proper protocols when it approved Mipristone in 2000, and that has since ignored safety risks of the medication. The FDA and the Department of Justice have strongly disputed those claims and said that the agency undertook rigorous reviews of Mipristone over the years that reportedly reaffirmed its decision to approve Mipristone which blocks a hormone that allows a pregnancy to to develop. They point to numerous studies showing that serious complications are rare, with patients needing hospitalization in less than 1% of cases. In his ruling, Judge Kazmierich, who previously worked for a conservative Christian legal organization, repeatedly used the language of abortion opponents, calling medication abortion chemical abortion calling abortion providers abortionists and referring to a fetus as an unborn human or unborn child. He appeared to agree with virtually all of the anti-abortion group's claims, writing, Here, FDA acquiesced on its legitimate safety concern concerns in violation of its statutory duty, based on plainly unsound reasoning and studies that did not support its conclusions. There is also evidence indicating FDA faced significant political pressure to forego its proposed safety precautions to better advance the political objective of increased access to chemical abortion. The FDA has regulated Mifepristone more stringently than many other drugs and applied a special framework of restrictions that is currently used for only 60 drugs in the country. In the case filed in federal court in Washington state, Democratic attorney generals from 17 states and the District of Columbia are seeking to eliminate that special framework of extra restrictions on Mifepristone. Judge Rice did not grant that request in his ruling Friday, but did order the FDA not to do anything to limit current access to Mifepristone. 
What are the options for preserving access if the Texas ruling is upheld? If the Texas judge's injunction stays in place as the full case makes its way through the courts, the FDA will most likely assert that it needs to follow its official process for withdrawing the approval of a drug. That process is lengthy. It requires reviews of extensive studies and data and could involve adversary uh, committee hearings in a public comment period. The process can take months or years, and while it is underway, the drug being reviewed remains available. Legal experts say the FDA also has the authority to decide not to enforce a regulation or prohibition of a drug if the agency considers the drug to be safe and effective, as it does with Mipristone. The agency could issue a determination saying it had decided not to enforce the ruling, or it could argue that it did not have the resources to try to stop the drug from reaching patients all over the country. Because the judge's rulings applies only to the FDA and not to abortion providers, several medication abortion services have said they will continue prescribing and dispensing mypristone unless there is an official FDA decision to withdraw the drug from the agency plans to enforce. It's also possible that one or both of the companies that make mypristone in the United States uh, Danko Laboratories and GenBioPro could file suit against the FDA to block its enforcement of the Texas judge's orders, legal experts say. What if efforts to keep mypristone available fail? Abortion providers and supporters of abortion rights are actively preparing for this possibility. Many of them have developed plans to prescribe only the second medication in the two-drug abortion regimen, misoprostol. This drug, which has been available for decades and is authorized for medical conditions like ulcers, causes contractions that result in a process resembling a miscarriage. The World Health Organization has endorsed a misoprostol-only regimen for abortion, and it is used in many countries, especially where there is limited availability of misoprostol. Studies suggest that using misoprostol on its own may be slightly less effective than a two-drug combination and can cause more side effects like nausea, but it is safe and, in a majority of cases, terminates a pregnancy without requiring a follow-up surgical procedure or other intervention. In the Texas lawsuit, the anti-abortion organizations also seek to ban the use of misoprostol for abortion, but their request for a preliminary injunction focused on miprostone. Could patients still order pills from abroad? Many patients would probably continue to order both Miprostone and Misoprotol from telemedicine abortion services based in other countries, especially Aid Access, an organization based in Europe that for years have provided the two-drug combination to patients in the United States after they complete medical co consultation forms. Currently, for patients in the states with abortion bans or restrictions, Aid Access has the pills shipped from a pharmacy in India, while patients in the states where, where abortion is legal receive their pills from providers within the United States. If the Texas ruling stands, Aid Access would most likely ship the pills from India to patients in every state. The organization's founder, Dr. Rebecca Gompertz, a Dutch physician, said in an interview. In 2019, the FDA tried unsuccessfully to get aid access to haul overseas shipping. Dr. Gomper said she would remain committed to uh, supplying patients in the United States. Would revoking the approval of Microstone have effects beyond abortion? 
Microstone is also frequently used to assist patients who are experiencing miscarriages. It is prescribed along with misoprotol to help expel the tissue from a pregnancy that has failed to develop. So if access to microstone is blocked, miscarriage patients will lose access to that treatment and will either have to undergo sur surgical removal of the tissue or wait days or weeks until it passes on its own in a process that can be medically risky for some patients. Revoking the federal approval of microstone could also undermine the FDA's long-standing and previously unquestioned authority granted by Congress to regu regulate virtually any drug. Legal experts say it could lead to challenges over the approval or use of medications involved in other controversial issues, such as vaccines or emergency contraception. In addition, if pharmaceutical companies cannot rely on the FDA's regulatory authority, that could affect their decisions about which drugs to develop. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Leaked Pentagon documents reveal secrets about friends and foes. A trove of secret Pentagon documents that were exposed on social media have shed new light on the state of war in Ukraine, showing just how deeply the United States has penetrated Russia's military and intelligence services, and revealing that Washington has been spying on some of its closest allies as well as its adversaries. The leaked documents provide a grim assessment of the strength of Moscow's war machine, but the material suggests the Ukrainian military is in dire straits too. The intelligence reports show that the United States appears to be spying on Ukraine's military and political leaders, as well as other important uh, American allies, including Israel and South Korea. The leaked documents have already complicated relations with allied countries, raising doubts about, them, about America's ability to keep its secrets. One senior U.S. official called the leak a massive intelligence breach. The FBI started an inquiry on Friday and will try to move swiftly to track down the source of the leak, officials said. Here is what is known about the documents and the repercussions their exposure has had around the world. Leaked document shows the dire nature of battle for Bakhmut. The Ukrainian army was close to losing a key battle of the war. A single, tenuous supply road for Ukrainian soldiers fighting in the streets of the eastern city of Bakhmut was taking fire. A general called the threatened road the last breathing tube. This dire assessment of fighting in Bakhmut, uh, one of the longest-running and most lethal battles of Russia's war in Ukraine, appears in a new batch of classified documents that appears to detail American national security secrets. The assessment captures only one moment from late February in the now 10-month-long fight for Bakhmut, a mid-sized university and mining town of questionable strategic significance, but one that both sides have freighted with political meaning. The city is now mostly in ruins as fires sweep through buildings and soldiers fight in fierce block-by-block -block combat. Ukrainian soldiers have fought human wave assaults by former convicts of the Wagner mercenary group and by elite Russian special forces troops and they have endured round-the-clock artillery bombardments. However, the leaked assessment focused on a related theater of the Battle of Bakhmut, including two flanking maneuvers by the Russian army through fields and villages to the city's northwest and southwest that were intended to encircle Ukrainian troops by cutting off supply roads. 
It described internal Ukrainian military deliberations on how to respond, with commanding generals deciding to deploy elite units from the military intelligence agency to push back the Russians. The documents from late February and early March, but found on social media sites in recent days, outline critical shortages that the Ukrainian military is facing. The intelligence reports show that the United States also appears to be spying on Ukraine's top military and political leaders, a reflection of Washington's struggle to get a clear view of Ukraine's fighting strategies. The leak pulled back the curtain on decision-making inside the Ukrainian military command in a way not seen before in public. The Ukrainian military has effectively safeguarded key secrets throughout the war, including foreshadowing of the successful surprise counterattack last summer in Kharkiv region that swept over Russian lines. Ukrainian officials have called the document leak a Russian propaganda ploy. The Ukrainian forces, as of February 25th, were almost operationally encircled by Russian forces in Bakhmut, the leaked intelligence assessment noted. Senior U.S. officials said an inquiry launched by the Federal Bureau of Investigation would try to move swiftly to determine the source of the leak. The officials acknowledged that the documents appeared to be legitimate intelligence in operational briefs compiled by the Pentagon's joint staff, using reports from the government's intelligence community, but that at least one had been modified from the original at some point later. It said that General Kirillo Budinov, Ukraine's director of military intelligence, offered to deploy elite units under his command for two weeks to push back Russian troops threatening the supply road. It cited General Budinov as describing Ukraine's position at the time as catastrophic. Yermak. Roman Mashevitz, an advisor to Andrew Yermak, President Volodymyr Zelensky's chief of staff, also offered a clear-eyed assessment in a briefing, the document says. Mr. Mashevitz advised that a single supply road winding over hills to the west of Bakhmut remained accessible for the forces inside the city, and that it was under artillery fire. Mashevis reported that, for those reasons, the morale in Bakhmut was low, with the Ukrainian forces under the impression that they were almost operationally encircled, the leaked assessment said. In the fighting on the plains of southeastern Ukraine, encirclement poses a grave danger feared by soldiers on both sides. Once surrounded, ammunition quickly runs low. Wounded uh, soldiers cannot be evacuated, and those still fighting are at risk of being overrun and killed. The commander of ground forces in the east, General Alexander Sersky, called the single supply road the last breathing tube and asked that Kraken, a unit in the military intelligence agency, be deployed to Bakhmut, the document said. The leak opened a window on internal deliberations in the Ukrainian leadership and showed a Western intelligence assessment that Bakhmut was teetering by late February. Yet the broader picture it paints was hardly secret. Russian forces had closed in on supply roads in February, according to the military's daily briefings and public comments by soldiers fighting in the area before Ukraine sent in reinforcements. A variety of elite units joined the fight. This fighting, which came after the intelligence assessment was written, was successful in uh, pushing Russian forces far enough from the roads to allow resupply of soldiers in the city and evacuation of the uh, wounded, 
but it came at a strategic cost for Ukraine, which has been seeking to retain its best trained and equipped soldiers for a counteroffensive anticipated in the uh, coming weeks or months. Wagner's influence uh, extends far beyond Ukraine, leaked documents show. A cache of leaked Pentagon documents circulating online portrays the Russian military as running out of steam, short on men and equipment, and facing a stalemate. But one group of Russian fighters stands as an exception. The mercenary group Wagner, known for its skill on the battlefield, its army of former prisoners, and its murder of at least one perceived traitor with a sledgehammer, remains a potent force with influence not just in Ukraine, but all over the world. Wagner, documents say, is actively working to thwart American interests in Africa and has explored branching out to Haiti. Right under the nose of the United States, with an offer to help the country's embattled government take on violent gangs. According to one confidential document, emissaries from Wagner secretly met with Turkish contacts in February, slipping onto NATO territory in search of weapons and equipment for its fight in Ukraine. Whether weapons actually changed hands and the Turkish authorities were aware of the effort is not clear. Officials from the government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan did not immediately comment on the revelation. But the brazenness of the outreach conducted even while NATO as a whole is deeply involved in supporting Ukraine with arms and equipment underscores the cowboy nature of Wagner. It also points to its apparent autonomy from the Russian military establishment, thanks to supply networks that extend far outside Russian territory. The document discussing the meeting in Turkey suggested that the West, West African nation of Mali, where, uh, where Wagner has set up a significant outpost, could serve as a proxy and acquire the weapons from Turkey on Wagner's behalf. The choice of Mali as a fig leaf for such an arms smuggling operation shows just how influential Wagner has become since it first established a presence in that country a few years ago, working to provide security for a military junta that took over in 2021. Another document, citing a Wagner employee, said there were more than 1,645 Wagner personnel in Mali, which the document said had sparked security concerns in neighboring Ivory Coast. But the weapons scheme also shows how much further Wagner must now go for its supplies, a sign that Western sanctions against Russia have begun to bite. This is a very interesting sign that there's a degrading of their capabilities, said Candace Rondo, an expert on Wagner who is a senior director at New America, a Washington think tank. Going further afield certainly suggests impact U.S. and European sanctions are starting to have on degrading the pipeline. Before the Ukraine war, little was known about Wagner, though mercenary fighters associated with the group known by that name had appeared on the battlefields of Syria and Libya. Its origins were shadowy, and there was debate over whether Wagner existed at all or was simply a product of Kremlin mythmaking. But in September, after years of denying any connection with the group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, a close confidant of President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia and a businessman who has served as a caterer for important Kremlin events, acknowledged that he had created Wagner. Since then, Mr. Prigozhin has become an unavoidable and menacing fixture of the war, donning a helmet and body armor to visit his troops at the front line while calling for the firing, or worse, of military leaders who have refused to follow his cavalier example. 
In one of the more disturbing episodes of the war, he endorsed the execution by sledgehammer of a Wagner fighter who had defected to the Ukrainian side but was sent back in a prisoner exchange. He has created an army out of freed Russian convicts and hired guns that one of the leaked Pentagon documents assessed to be about 22,000 strong in that area around Bakhmut, possibly larger than the entire Ukrainian contingent along that front. Even as Mr. Prigozhin has criticized Russia's military leadership, demanding in one instance that failed generals be stripped of their ranks and forced to march barefoot to the front, the military establishment appears to have jumped to do Wagner's bidding, according to the leaked documents. After Mr. Prigozhin publicly accused the Russian military in late February of failing to provide his troops with significant ammunition, unnamed defense ministry officials seem to go into damage control mode, acknowledging Mr. Progizm's uh, claims might be true and proposing to double the amount of munition supply to Wagner uh, forces, according to a CIA document. Later, the ministry issued a rare public response to Mr. Prigozhin, but gave no hint that it had caved. The ministry declared that it devoted priority attention to the supply of everything necessary for all volunteers and fighters in assault units and gave a detailed account of the number of shells provided over a three-day period in late February. What neither the Russian military nor Wagner have been able to escape is infiltration by the American intelligence establishment. The documents indicate American spies have been gathering signals intelligence from Prigozhin associates, allowing them to glimpse the inner workings of Wagner's operation. One document describes how American intelligence operatives apparently listened in on Prigozhin's associate in February, planning to recruit prisoners again into Wagner's ranks. American intelligence officials also picked up that Mr. Prigozhin wanted prisoners returning home from battlefield to help in the recruitment effort. Documents allege that Israel's spy agency encouraged anti-government protests. Among the revelations contained in the leaked Pentagon documents was an assertion that the leadership of the Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence service, had encouraged the agency's staff and Israeli citizens to participate in the anti-government protests that recoiled the country in March. Senior Israeli defense officials denied the assessment's findings, and the New York Times was unable to independently verify the U.S. intelligence assessment. Israel, which returned Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to power in December as the head of the most far-right government coalition in its history, was paralyzed by protests and strikes in March after the government revealed plans to overhaul the country's judiciary. The proposed reforms, which were criticized by Israel's closest ally, the United States, would have given the government more control in the selection of judges. According to the leaked documents, an assessment attributed to a Central Intelligence update from March 1st, leaders of the Mossad advocated for Mossad officials and Israeli citizens to protest against the new Israeli government's proposed judicial reforms, including several explicit calls to action that decried the Israeli government. According to the documents, the information was obtained through signals intelligence. Many of the leaked documents are labeled with orders that they are to be shared only among American intelligence agencies. Current and former Israeli intelligence officials said the agency's rules and longstanding tradition of nonpartisanship would have precluded a direct involvement by the agency's leadership in a political crisis. Asked for comment, the Prime Minister's office 
of which the Mossad is part, said it was looking into the reports. Some Mossad employees, however, requested and received permission to participate in the demonstrations as private citizens. The Mossad chief, David Barnia, in consultation with Israel's attorney general, allowed junior employees to participate so long as they did not identify themselves as members of the organization, according to a defense official familiar with the agency's policy. Several hundred former Mossad employees, including five former chiefs, also signed a statement in March opposing the overhaul promoted by the government. Ultimately, the protesters stalled the proposal's progress, and the government said it would shelve the legislation until at least the summer. The Mossad itself has never taken a position on any political or social controversy in Israel. Also, in contrast to the Shin Bet, which deals with uh, domestic security, the Mossad works exclusively outside the country. The information included in the leaked documents, however, has some overlap with unsubstained accusations promoted by Yair Netanyahu, the prime minister's son. The younger Mr. Netanyahu has claimed that hostile elements inside Israel's intelligence community and the U.S. State Department were behind the protests. Fed up with mayhem, Miami Beach wants to tame spring break for good. After a series of violent incidents, the city is moving to preempt late-night partying, but businesses worry about crimping their most profitable tourism season. By Patricia Mazai. After two fatal shootings on Ocean Drive over a March weekend, Miami Beach leaders followed their recent playbook for dealing with raucous spring break crowds, a state of emergency, a midnight curfew, and limited liquor sales. Then in a new and drastic step, the city commissioners announced a curfew for 2024, a full year in advance, and declared spring break on the sun-kissed streets of Miami Beach to be over. Miami Beach is shutting down the door on spring break once and for all. Alex J. Fernandez, a city commissioner who sponsored a series of 2024 measures, said before the vote, The decision in the middle of the March and April season that is the most profitable time of year for the local businesses has caused both relief and consternation over the possible loss of the throngs of visitors that have grown to overwhelm the city's police and other public services and of the money that those visitors spend on hotel rooms, nightclub cover charges, and boozy cocktails. Miami Beach both loves and hates its tourists, a conflicting sentiment that has long plagued officials as the city has evolved from a cocaine cowboy den in the 80s to a high-fashion revere in the 90s to what it is today, a glittering playground for affluent families making a home, foreigners chasing the sun, and young American vis- visitors who come looking for a good time. Some people, including the city's mayor, want the partiers gone for good. If Miami Beach is to be rebranded as less of a spring break destination and more of an arts and culture and health and wellness hub, some owners of bars, nightclubs, and liquor stores worry that they will lose business. And some residents and officials fear losing the diversity and laid-back vibe that make Miami Beach, Miami Beach. What we're seeing is panic-stricken politicians who feel the need to do something, Ricky Ariola, a city commissioner who voted against the 2024 curfew, said in an interview, The heavy hand of government is being imposed on residents, our visitors, and businesses, rather than doing the hard work of coming up with really strategic alternatives. Similar frictions between residents and visitors have afflicted other popular Florida spring break locales, like Panama City Beach. Over time, Fort Lauderdale and other cities have pushed spring breakers out, 
in part by raising hotel rates and changing zoning laws to turn dive bars into more upscale establishments. Miami Beach has been wrestling with its reputation as a party town. A judge recently upheld an ordinance imposing a partial 2 a.m. cutoff on alcohol sales for a South Beach neighborhood known as South of Fifth, now full of glimmering condos. The law had been challenged by Story, a nightclub that argued it could not survive if it could no longer sell alcohol until 5 a.m. Patience has worn thin as spring break revelers often partying with alcohol or drugs have packed a roughly 10-block stretch of South Beach along the Atlantic Oceanfront each season, leading to unpredictable situations that sometimes turn violent because so many people have guns, according to city leaders, police officers, and business owners. The two deadly incidents this year took place over the St. Patrick's Day weekend, typically one of the busiest of the season. After the second, the city briefly imposed a midnight curfew. Last year, two shootings on Ocean Drive led the city to set a midnight curfew. In 2021, Midnight Beach made headlines when, while still in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, the city marketed itself to visitors even though many nightclubs remained closed, leading to raucous street parties. Officials responded that year by imposing an 8 p.m. curfew. The rowdy behavior in the streets and the curfews that resulted have hurt businesses year after year, said Joshua Wallach, the chief operating officer of Mango's Tropical Cafe, an Ocean Drive institution for more than 30 years. When they go from a dangerous situation to complete lockdown, there is no business, he said. We're just caught in the wake of how they handle it. The service industry and the hospitality industry, they get completely obliterated because it goes from having complete chaos to nothing. In the past, civil rights activists have complained about the city police department's use of military-style vehicles, pepper balls, and forceful crowd control tactics during spring break, which attracts many Black visitors to a city whose resident population is largely white. Glendon Hall, Chairman of the Miami Beach Black Affairs Adversary Committee, which was created two years ago, was embedded with uh, police officers in the city's goodwill ambassadors during spring break last month. He said in a statement that was read at a meeting on Tuesday that he was pleased with how law enforcement handled the massive crowds this year and that there had been no major complaints from civil rights groups. The Miami Beach Police Department made 573 arrests in March a slight drop from 615 arrests in March 2022, according to Officer Ernesto Rodriguez, a department spokesman. Police officers seized more than 100 guns this year, he added. In spite of the headlines about shootings and curfews, families, couples, and small gaggles of friends strolled down the sidewalks of Ocean Drive on a Friday afternoon last month. Marcus Benjamin, a 19-year-old college student from Chicago, said the city's emergency measures had not at all affected his trip with two of his buddies. I've seen a lot of cops on the beach, said one of his friends, Cameron Sasser, also 19, but it's about the same as other years. Still, most everyone in city leadership seems to agree that the chaotic spring break crowds have become too much, but when it comes to what to do about them, views differ. Mayor Dan Gelber said spring break doesn't fit with a city that has so many residents. South Beach has bars and restaurants, he said, but it also has elementary schools and churches and synagogues. Some local residents and visitors who spend lavishly often avoid the city during spring break. Some commissioners, like Mr. Fernandez, have said they want to keep spring breakers, but not lawbreakers, who follow them into the city. 
The worst thing that we can do is continue doing the same thing we've done now for several years in a row, which is knowing that we're going to have an overcrowding of our city and waiting until the violent situation occurs, until the death occurs, to react, he said in an interview. It's better to get ahead of the situation and impose a curfew and restrictions now. In 2021, Miami Beach lost in court after the Clevelander Hotel sued the city over a law setting a 2 a.m. curfew cut off for alcohol sales. The judge ruled that the ordinance had not been properly enacted. Under states of emergency during past spring breaks, increased regulations yielded little success in subduing the party scene. According to commissioners like Ms. Ariola, who would prefer to bring in a big organized event in March that would allow officials to set up barricades, ticketed entry and metal detectors around Ocean Drive, roughly from 5th to 15th streets. At least people that are celebrating spring break in a street party on Ocean Drive could have the comfort of knowing that there wouldn't be any weapons in that area, he said. After seeing crowds go grow for nearly two decades at another busy time of year, Memorial Day weekend, the city began in 2017 to host the Hyundai Air and Sea Show, which features the military. The event has displaced many of the partiers who used to gather for Urban Beach Week, celebrating hip-hop. This year, a three-day festival in March on Ocean Drive and in nearby Loomis Park drew daytime visitors and the police department said helped tame spring break, but only until the festival's music and other entertainment ended at around 9 p.m. each day. Both of the shootings happened later at night. Without a major event lined up for 2024, the city appears to be considering a spring break lockdown, something Mr. Wallach said would go too far. Miami Beach should be able to offer a multitude of activities, from arts to wellness to nightlife, without having to sacrifice one for the other, he argued. This is a city, he said. And anyway, he added, good luck trying to lock down public beaches. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Marvel superhero and indigenous actress holds fast to Maya roots. After filming her part in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Maria Mercedes Corroy returned to her normal life of farming and trading in a Guatemalan town at the base of a volcano. By Julia Lieblick. For her big underwater scene in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the Guatemalan actress Maria Mercedes Corroy had to hold her breath as her character Princess Fen gives birth in a hazy ocean world to a winged serpent sun. She emerges from the watery depths as a rarity, even in Marvel's fantastical universe, a female Maya superhero. The day after filming her final scene in Los Angeles, Miss Corroy, rather than hanging out in Hollywood, headed home to Santa Maria de Jesus, a cacchical Maya town of about 22,000 at the base of a volcano in Guatemala. By nightfall, she was curled up in bed in her family's bright pink cinder block house with vegetables growing in the backyard. I felt like my bed was hugging me, says uh, Colroy, 28, one of nine siblings in a family of farmers and vendors. The next morning, she resumed her life as usual. She and her mother put on their hand-woven hue piles or blouses and cortez or skirts to catch the 5.30 bus to the small city of Esquintla to sell produce in a bustling market a job she started after fifth grade when she had to drop out of school to help her parents. Some days, she walks two hours with a mule to the family farm to cultivate cabbage and pumpkins. In her spare time, she weaves colorful hue piles 
with motifs of birds and flowers on a backstrap loom. People ask me what I do after filming, she said, who is working on her third Guatemalan movie after appearing in two in the United States. I go back to normal. Miss Corroy represents a new generation of Maya actors determined to hone their craft while holding onto their customs and helping expose a legacy of discrimination against Guatemala's indigenous population. While she said she enjoys acting in the United States and posing in a pink and blue cupel at the 2021 Global Golden Globe Awards, she is more interested in her own country's burgeoning film industry. But whether she's working in her homeland or Hollywood, acting can be draining, and she relies on Santa Maria de Jesus to recharge her. I love my life, but filming is physically demanding, Miss Corray said, relaxing on a beach in Santa Maria's Central Park. This is my community. Miss Corroy's first role was the lead in a school play production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Santa Maria de Jesus has long been locally famous for its street theater, and a decade ago, the Guatemalan director Jairo Bustamante came to town to prepare for his first feature film, Volcano, or Each Canole. He wanted to tell a story of Maya women that addressed issues like endemic poverty and inequities in education and healthcare. And he was determined to cast Maya actors speaking the indigenous language of Cachiquel. Mr. Bustamante initially put up a sign in a town central park, casting here. No one showed up. A few days later, he posted, work here. He was overwhelmed with prospective actors. Miss Corroy missed the audition, but a friend put her in touch with the director the next day. He told me I was the only person who looked him in the eye, she said. When he offered her the lead, she balked. I had no experience. I was afraid I would ruin the movie. But he convinced her to join a cast, and for the next several months, they trained at the country's first film academy founded by Mr. Bustamante. When we began filming, they were no longer amateur actors, Mr. Bustamante said. Each Canol, which won the Alfred Bauer Prize at the 65th uh, Berlin International Film Festival, focuses on a poor family in the mountains that arranges for the daughter to marry a plantation overseer. The daughter secretly gets involved with a young man, a drunk and a dreamer, who promises to take her with him to the United States. But he leaves without her and she finds herself pregnant while still engaged to the other man. After she gives birth in the hospital, a staff member tells her that her baby has died. When the young woman finds out later that her child had lived and had possibly, be, possibly been sold for adoption, grief consumes her. Quiet and fearless, the Los Angeles-based film critic Manuel uh, Bet Betancourt wrote of Miss Corroy's understated performance, which revealed anguish behind a still face. I mouthed the words I was feeling in my head, Miss Corroy said, explaining her acting method. It was easier then because I was naturally timid. I'm much more animated now. Her second film with Mr. Busamante, La Llorona, transformed a traditional Latin American ghost story into an indictment of a fictional dictator, but one clearly reminiscent of the Guatemalan leader, General Efrain Rios Montt. Five years before his death in 2018, General Rios Montt was found guilty of genocide and crimes against humanity for the systematic slaughter of Maya men, women, and children in the 1980s after he took control of the country in a coup. Miss Corre plays Alma, a Maya housemaid whose son and daughter were among those murdered. A spectral figure in white, she haunts the dictator in his home. 
A casting director saw her in the two Bosomante films and picked her for the first part of an indigenous gorilla in Bel Canto, an American film starring Julianne Moore. For two and a half months, Miss Corey filmed in Mexico and the United States, the longest she had ever been away from her family. She froze in New York, she said, and didn't like the food. The actress prefers not to discuss politics, but Mr. Busamante said artists in Guatemala worked in an increasingly hostile climate. You realize you're in a country where there is a dictatorship without that name, Mr. Busamante wrote in an email interview. There is a murky sort of oppression and no rights or freedom. When Ixtcanol was released, he wrote, there was a general rejection by the Guatemalan people of this sort of subject matter. With La Llorona, it was much more dangerous. We received anonymous threats. Wakanda Forever, a global blockbuster distributed by Disney, also addresses the oppression of the Maya. Miss Corroy's character, Princess Fen, catches smallpox brought by Spaniards to the Yucatan Peninsula in the 16th century. A shaman gives her a drink that allows her to live and give birth underwater. When her winged son, Namor, played by the Mexican actor Tenoch Huerta, returns to the Yucatan, he sees Spaniards beating the Maya they had enslaved. In Guatemala, some Maya families encourage their children to speak only Spanish and wear Western clothing to escape ongoing rampant discrimination. But that's not how Miss um, Corroy was raised. My parents tell me I should be proud, said Miss Corroy, who eventually returned to night school and finished college. There is no way you can hide that you are indigenous. She has recently begun delving into Maya spirituality. Her grandmother was a natural healer who taught her about the curative properties of herbal teas and flowers. While she worships in a Catholic church, she also studies with an indigenous spiritual teacher and reads the Maya creation story, the Popol Vuh. Central to Maya religion is Maximon, a trickster deity both benevolent and hedonistic. In ceremonies, adherents smoke and drink in front of his wooden figure in the hopes that he will hear their entreaties. Miss Corey attends ceremonies without imbibing, she said. I respect Maximon, she said. I have connected with him in dreams. He said, you neither speak well of me nor poorly, so I will protect you. While she's famous enough in Guatemala that people in the colonist tourist city of Antigua, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, approach her politely for autographs, her neighbors in Santa Maria avoid singling her out. Walking in the town's park, she might as well be any other vendor. There's no movie star culture here, Miss Corey said. There are no paparazzi. You've been listening to a recording of articles and features from the April 8th issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Ambria, and thank you so much for listening.